It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZE Community Show and this show are now available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe and rate us to help others find the shows. My name is Kay Wenigal and I'm joined today by my co-host Natalie Bucknell. Hello Kay, hello everyone. All around the world, people are becoming more and more despairing of the man-made climate crisis. The Emeritus Director of the Potsdam Institute, Professor Hans-Johann Schnellberger, Huber, warns that climate change is now reaching the end game, where very soon humanity must choose between taking unprecedented action or accepting that it has been left too late and bear the consequences. You can see people's concern with groups like the Extinction Rebellion, Worldwide Actions, Worldwide Student Actions, and also the young student Greta Thunberg's speeches. There are many different types of actions that are being taken to help highlight the impending crisis we face. And today we have a group of groups that are tackling their council head-on. Andrew McKernan from Knox Climate Action Now is here to speak about their plan. Hi Andrew, thanks for joining us. Hello Kay, hello Natalie, thank you for inviting me. Now, firstly, Andrew, tell us how Knox Can Climate Action Now was was formed. Well, Knox Climate Action started with a group of groups. We're all volunteers in local community projects, largely friends of creeks around the area and wetlands, uh, parklands. And we had a get-together earlier this year to see what these groups could do to leverage up for each other and what we all need as, as, as collectives and just work out, well, you know, can we have combined planting days and things like that? What, what would it really help us as a, as a collective? And we had a get-together at our council offices and went put all our suggestions up on the board and everyone got to put a dot on their most important thing that would really help their community project. And the one thing that bubbled to the top when we voted on all these items was action on climate change, every group. Every single group with a really diverse background. Just to back up a bit, whereabouts is Knox, Andrew? Knox is in the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne, uh, at the bottom of the Dandenong Ranges, Fentragully, Baronia, the Basin. Okay, and how did those groups come together initially? What prompted that? Uh, The council actually put it together, first of all, from their biodiversity team. They, They get a lot of benefits from all these community groups doing a lot of work for free that helps the council out and... Uh, it's been quite a successful program over the years. Knox Council have also um, supported the Gardens for Wildlife scheme, which has been adopted throughout many parts of Victoria now. And I think they, they thought maybe this maybe this could um, develop into a, a bigger collective. So it's a lot of volunteers who are very engaged with the natural environment, and and that's where you're coming from as well, isn't it, Andrew? What's your background? Yes, I'm an arborist, so I do uh, risk assessment of trees, risk of harm, which is uh, 
closely aligned to what a lot of the thoughts I have on the future of the climate, yes. risk of harm. So, okay, so the Knox Council decided this was a good idea to get all you groups together to, to what end, on, as far as they were concerned? Well, from their perspective, it's, it's getting um, the volunteers to get more effect within the community on, on these projects and maybe expand it to other parklands, other reserves. But uh, the main thing that came out of it was the, the concern for climate. So amongst these reserves where we've been working, the locals, we've actually witnessed the decline of Indigenous species. Some of our local tree populations, the native Tanoks, are starting to die off, decline in, in big numbers. We know it's happening. We also struggle to establish some of our plants that used to live in the area when we, we grow them in a nursery, but they, they really do struggle under our new climate. So what has the collective decided to do about this? So following that meeting, we had, we had a... Um, we had another get together um, through the volunteer through the community nursery, and they've been great at supporting our, our get togethers. We're not an, an official group; we're just a collection of, of like-minded individuals. But we decided that getting Knox to take some serious action on this and declare a climate emergency was the key. So we we decided to uh, petition our councillors directly, but also uh, get the community to write to sign a petition to uh, declare the climate emergency. And the council signed the climate emergency? No, they haven't declared a climate emergency yet, so we're still working on that. We're, we're hoping to uh, get a vote on that very soon, but it's, it's, it's a lot of work. And did you, how did you go about working out what was needed in a climate emergency petition? So we did spend a lot of time on that. We, we looked at what other councils have done. We looked at um, other climate emergency declarations and... We, we reworded our petition several times before we came to a conclusion of what really needed to happen. So some of the some of the council declarations have been very much a, a declaration of it's there and we should do something. We wanted our declaration to be a bit more substantial and hold the council to account. So accounting is a, v a very important part of our petition. We've said it has to be a whole of business approach. So every department, every facet of council needs to consider everything they do in light of climate change. So we want a de declaration that says uh, what they expect to face, what challenges they expect to face in the future, their adaptation plans for living within those challenges, and what efforts that they are going to take to mitigate emissions and protect the environment. And keep in mind that the environment is a very key part of that because of the groups that put this plan together. And what sort of response have you had to the petition so far? Well, the public, fantastic response. So we've been collecting signatures at public events, festivals, at our community nursery. The councillors themselves... Over what period of time? Uh, over two months. Mm -hmm. The councillors themselves, mixed reactions. Um, some are more positive than others, as you'd expect, but they do push back a little bit and, and sort of throw it back to us and say, well, if you want this declaration, prove it. Bring the community to us. Give us evidence. We want broad-based community support because we're, we're not going to just stand up here. We're not going to stand up here and declare an emergency because we think it's a good idea. You have to prove it. So thousands of hours of work got thrown back on our little group to collect that evidence. 
And that's fair enough. And I presume other councils that have declared climate emergencies around Australia possibly would have had the same sort of idea. Did you look at other councils and see what they were doing in terms of a climate emergency? Yes, we looked at uh, Darabin, we looked at uh, Maroondah, uh, looked at, at many many of the Moreland. Uh, Moreland, yeah. A lot Moreland. of the a lot of these policies are up online. You can download them and look Byron look over Bay. what they've done. So Maroondah Council surprised me. They haven't declared a climate emergency, but they have done a fair bit of community consultation, and they've put together a good start for a plan Com- compared to other councils that have declared a council emergency but done very little. So I think there's a, there's an approach where you can declare the emergency, put that in a parcel and say, oh, that over there, well, that's our climate emergency, emergency done. We've got a committee. Let the committee deal with it. So the climate deniers can use that as a crutch then. They say, oh, no, we declared the emergency. Oh, look, there it is. It's done. Well, we want it to be more than that. We want them to be held accountable. So in terms of holding your council accountable, what, what steps do you need to take? So every, every department of council has to do a budget every year. They, they, finance is just a regular thing. It's not a big deal. You just have to, you have to declare we're going to spend this much money. I think we should have climate a mandatory reporting item as well. Climate is happening. It's here. It's now. The climate change has started. So we should have annual reports from every d- department of council saying what's happening about it, what are we doing about it. In terms of what's happening, though, I mean, it would vary from council to council, wouldn't it? Because an inner city council would be very different to a rural council in terms of how they measure it and what's required. Yeah, apparently Broken Hill just declared a climate emergency, mm-hmm. which is interesting with a, um, a large rural population. Wouldn't it be great if we could get councils in say new england all around barnaby joyce to declare a climate emergency uh and throw that in his face and say look the people really do care the councils all around you farmers get a, a, a bad rap as not caring but most farmers well all farmers are living the climate change so if rural communities can push their council to declare an emergency i think that that might even have more of an effect federally than than direct lobbying yeah, it's probably a, a whole um, number of different approaches that need to be taken together. It's, it, it's a big ship to turn the federal opinion around, whereas a uh, your local council is something that you can get onto as a community group and make, make an effect straight away. So you mentioned Maroondah Council as being one that hasn't declared a climate emergency but is actually t- tackling the climate problem better than most councils. Are there any other councils that you had a look at that you could say the same of? Oh, look, there's varying degrees of success in, in, in all of them. Um, Moreland have certainly been very proactive over many years, um, pushing away at it. There's Greening the West, on the west side of Melbourne. Uh, they've done some great great work. They're heading in the right direction. So what, what do you think a climate emergency in Knox should look like? What sort of actions would the local community and the council be committing to if you take that on and say, yes, we really are in emergency mode? So as a group, we've tried not to be too prescriptive to council because we think it is their job to, to start this conversation going and, and, and work it as a committee. But, but we have had a lot of ideas of, of where we see holes in the planning. So, for example, water-sensitive urban design 
my street was recently replaced. A 1950s-style concrete curb and channel was replaced in 2019 with the same curb and channel. So since the Menzies government, we haven't thought of a better curb and channel. I raised that at a council meeting. I said, why aren't we putting water collection in and, uh, and harvesting that, that runoff? And the council engineer just bluffed me off and said, oh, yeah, those water collection things, they've got mixed results. But we're spending millions of dollars replacing infrastructure with the same thing. We're not planning for the 21st century climate adaptation. Bus stops is another example. The, all of the glass bus stops around Melbourne, you can't use them in a 47-degree day. Um, just before we get on to bus stops, and I, I think you know that's a really important area as well, and, and there's a, quite a number that you're looking at um, getting your council to undertake. With the water-sensitive urban design, there's so many different things that you can do, I, I understand, like rain gardens above ground and in, in, infiltration, swales, um, constructed wetlands, porous pavement, rainwater and stormwater harvesting, green infrastructure, green roofs, all those things. Are you proposing that your council does all of those things or is it specific to the area? So, so once again, we're not, we're not prescribing what our council should do. We're, we're asking for them to, to start looking at it in a serious way. So they, they can educate the community. They can guide developers. They can put policies in place for new buildings and infrastructure. They can monitor what their own engineers are coming up with for street design. There's a lot they can do, but it needs to be considered and reported on every year. So if we can at least get the council to consider it and report on it, then we can start holding them to account. So if they put the climate lens on every single activity, then you're saying the actions will flow from that? Exactly. But your council hasn't got a climate lens. You've already said that they've got. They've asked you to go out there and tell them whether or not the community wants it. And then they've got to develop a climate lens beyond that. So maybe it's up to you to develop that lens. Well, I'm sure there'd be many community members would would be happy to be part of that um, consultation process. But at the moment, it's just not happening. That dealing with climate is a case of let's put some solar panels on, let's get two electric cars uh, and declare that done. It's all about a little token effort on energy. But the big picture's being missed, mm. as we discussed with the water and mm. so many other facets of planning. So you're saying, so Knox is already working on council emissions, but not considering community-wide emissions or impacts? Well, they, they need to do more to encourage other people to take they, those initiatives. But, and and it, community education, but policy documents, policy on, on planning, policy on, on construction, the, these are all things that... the council can do they're not just roads rubbish rates it's a bigger picture than that for council if you've just tuned in we're speaking to andrew mckernan from knox community action now group so andrew when you talk just getting back to this water sensitive urban design which i think is a really important thing um you mentioned one aspect, and I think it's a great one, and I wish more councils did that, and certainly my council's not doing that. But when you look at what could be done, and i just harking back to that point, somewhere along the line, someone is obviously, or a group has got to come up with plans in order for the council to understand it, because currently it appears from your description that they don't even understand what 
actions they should be taking. So how do you do that? A lot of the research has already been done into water-sensitive urban design, but it's like they've got blinkers on. They, they just want to repeat the same work that they've done forever. They're not trying new things, new streetscape designs. So I don't know. No, we, we, need, we need to bring in more experts, more consultation, more community discussions. The ideas are out there, but they just keep repeating the same known process over and over. So, okay, let's get on to the other ones. You, you've talked about the water-sensitive urban design and you start, I interrupted you on bus shelters. Can you speak a bit more about that? Well, we have all these heat waves now, 40 degrees plus, 47 degree days. Who's going to stand in a glass bus shelter in the baking sun? Why do we have glass bus shelters? It's, it's nonsensical. <laughs> it's half a glass house. We should have bus shelters that uh, provide protection from all the elements, not just rain. We need shading from the sun. How about trees, plants incorporated into bus shelter design or some sort of insulation from, from the heat of the day? And the flow through air? Quite yep. often they're just enclosed little hothouses? Well, if we want people to use public transport more, we have to make it comfortable for them and usable for them every day of the year. And you believe that transport is a really key component of the whole issue as well? Yeah. As I came to the studio today down Smith Street, it was great Look, driving along past the new bicycle paths through the city. We have bike paths out in urban areas, but they tend to follow parklands. We don't have um, the sort of streetscape priority to, to cars, to, to bicycles and foot traffic that I've seen being built in the city now. Yeah, they often tend to be re for recreation rather than point-to-point -point travel, don't they? Yep. Talking about bike paths, you also mentioned greener bike paths. What are they? Uh, so BZD, Beyond Zero Emissions, I'm a huge fan of. I should admit oh, I, am a, I am a groupie. It's always wonderful <laughs> to hear. <laughs> Great to know. Uh, have the uh, low-carbon cement plan. Now, I've been trying to get our council to use low-carbon cement for our bike paths and footpaths, but I find that it's unavailable in the eastern half of Melbourne. There's a batching plant in the north of Melbourne and there's a batching plant down in Port Melbourne, but our council couldn't even access the low-carbon cement even if they tried. Oh, that's very I, disappointing. I hope the, low carb, the geopolymer cement people are listening. There's a market there. Mm, I've been tapping them on the shoulder a bit. So uh, we need um, economies of, of scale. So if we get enough councils in the east of Melbourne to declare a climate emergency and have a policy of low-carbon cement, then maybe we'll get a low-carbon batching plant that could also be used in uh, other concrete projects such as construction of new dwellings and roads. Great. I hope that you've got that on your list then, for your <laughs> council to speak to other councils about. Well, I've been speaking to ECAM, Eastern Climate Action Melbourne, and that's one of the things they've been considering is how they can bring these, once again, groups of groups together. So hopefully that's uh, something they'll be pursuing in future. Yeah, so that collective power is really critical to the transition, isn't it? Yes, yes. It, it, economies of scale is very important to bring in new technology like that. So another point that you mentioned um, before the show was um, caring for the el elderly in heat waves. What are your thoughts about that? So in the lead up to Black Saturday, there was more deaths from the heat than what actually happened from the fires, which is a terrible 
statistic. Probably doubled the amount of people. Yeah. I believe it was over 370 people. So that, That's it, not something that you hear about at all. And, no. and that affects the elderly more than anyone. So we need plans on what what are we going to do about that. Um, are the elderly trapped in their houses during these heat waves or you know, what can we do so that there's, there's ways of getting out, even just to go do something basic like go shopping? How, how can they transit that? What, what are we going to do to give them activities if we've got a, a week of, of heat where they can't get out of their house who's checking on them what are our plans in place for ad- adopting to that change and uh, another point that you made was that um, shaded road surfaces that should last longer than the uv exposed road surfaces i believe it was vic roads that did a survey on that that did, did a study on that that roads under shade ha- have greater durability they require less upkeep so if we had greater shading over all of our arterial roads and suburban streets, there would be less maintenance in the long run. How does that go? I mean, if you've got trees that are shading roads, how do large trucks and other vehicles get through? Uh, clearance for, for trees is, is quite achievable without uh, having to close off streets. But maybe a, a redesign of arterial routes, um, maybe the, where the trees are positioned within a roadway, could be changed. Maybe we need a priority on one side of the street to trees so that we can have a, a large dominant tree structure overhanging the road rather than having narrow little nature strips on, on each side of the road. Mm, you're an arborist. You would know about all these things, wouldn't you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, and that's why I'm very aware of the decline in trees. Mm-hmm. We're seeing more and more species disappear. And would that also work for, for bike paths as well, obviously, as for powered vehicles yes i think green infrastructure should be obviously i have a bias here but i think green infrastructure should be considered in in all new infrastructure should be treated with priority shouldn't it yes so it's not only green spaces and and greenness that you've considered though is it um waste is another issue that your group is considering as part of this yes so uh, this also gets back to some of the bz sorry beyond zero emissions plans where you know, waste and recycling could be incorporated into the new infrastructure, such as the polymer concretes, incorporating plastics into cement, but also uh, waste from bins, green bins. Uh, some of the counts- councils are looking now at, at, at having all organic waste going to your uh, green bins, such as uh, food scraps as well. So that'll reduce the amount of waste going to landfill that can be recycled through composting plants which is then distributed to farms and increase humus layers so you're getting benefit from it rather than just landfill yes yep and another aspect that you raised is the threat of bushfires from increased number of hot days and you know less rainfall what are your thoughts around bushfire risk for your council area so our council verges it's it's urban but it verges into the bushfire risk area. So, a, a small so it's at the bottom of the Dandenong yes. Ranges? Yes. So some, some of our, our residents are threatened by bushfire, but also we neighbour Maroonda Council, which is uh, very high risk uh, fire areas, and Yarra Rangers Council. So my question is, what are the councils doing for the people that have to evacuate their homes on high fire danger days. Do they just go to the local shopping centre and ent- entertain their teenage kids uh, in a shopping mall 
or watching movies, spending money all day? Or is there other alternatives the council could be looked at, looking at? Could we open up community centres, schools, education facilities? What else can we do to um, help those people that have to spend more and more days each year out of their house during catastrophic fire danger days? It can be a big issue, particularly for young families or elderly people, to have a good refuge area in those high fire danger days. And you just can't keep going to the mall, the shopping centre. You can't keep doing that time and time again. You need need alternatives. Absolutely. So a lot of these are sounding like adaptation plans, really, climate adaptation plans. Is the is your climate emergency declaration also involve some mitigation actions on emissions? So I think there's always been a big emphasis on energy. And when you look at most of the council plans, they have energy policies in place already. That is like the, that, that's a very important thing. That's one third of the problem. But educating the community is also part of council's role. Um, policies for um, the environment, policies for building low energy consuming housing is part of council role. So I think there's, while energy takes the lion's share of the debate, we need to make sure council is also considering all these other aspects that we have covered. So you're saying mitigation plus adaptation is important? Yes, and particularly on a local level, adaptation is it just should be incorporated in every decision. As it should be anyway, I mean, yes. it's not just at a local level. Yep. Where can our listeners find out more, Andrew, about what, about what Knox Climate Action Now is doing? So Knox Climate Action Now is uh, we have a, a page on our local uh, community nursery website that's the Knox Environment Society. So we have a, a few of our um, documents up there. If, if other areas want to start a petition, you can download some of the, the pro formas that we've put together. And we're also happy to take inquiries if you want to email us. Thanks so much for your time today, Andrew. Thank you. Cheers. We've been speaking to Andrew McKernan from Knox Climate Action Now Group. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. Previous episodes of this show are available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe to help others find the show. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.